Elise Glink joins us now on the Wintrust Business Lunch from Think Glink Media and Best Money Moves. Hi, Elise. Welcome back. Hey, John. Nice to be here. You were traveling a little, weren't you? I was. I went down to Peru and I was uh, climbing some mountains. It's a lot of fun. Because why? Because <laughs> when you're breathing at 15,000 feet, it's all you can think of. <laughs> Really? You were up that high, huh? Yeah. Our last day, we started at 14,300 feet and got just under 15,000. Was this just a amble up a path or was it a little treacherous? Um, well, it wasn't raining, so it wasn't treacherous. And I had my hiking sticks. It was just was a challenge. It's something Sam, my husband Sam, and I really like to do together. And so a couple of times a year, we find a mountain that needs climbing and we just go climb it. And it was dry. Was it warm? What's the temperature in Peru this time of year? Uh, it's lovely. This should be the rainy season, but um, they're not getting much rain these days. Uh, so it was uh, lovely and warm. The sun is uh, very hot. Actually, you have to wear gloves so you don't get your hands sunburned. Um, and the air temperature is somewhere in the upper 60s, low 70s. Wow. Oh, good on you. What a fun yeah. little vacation, huh? Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. We were talking about... Uh, Store theft, we were talking about uh, gift cards. Um, and I said, what is the value per person in the United States of unused gift cards last year? I'm going to say it's probably about $230. You're closer than Steve was. Uh, he said 100 <laughs> and it's $175 a person. A mm. separate study on gift card usage found that the average amount on unused gift cards last year was $175 a person. We're talking about $21 billion in unused or lost gift cards. We, as consumers in America, last year gave $21 billion to stores and asked for nothing in return. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about gift cards. So a number of years ago, the state of Illinois changed its rules. A number of other states did as well because people... Um, weren't using up those gift cards and, and businesses were accounting for them as if they were real sales. And they changed how long that you are allowed to keep those gift cards and having the value intact. I think it's five years in the state of Illinois, but I will also admit that I've got a couple of gift cards that I got at the end of last year that I haven't used up yet. Well, why should it expire after 12 months or any period of time? Right. I, I'm not sure it really should, um, except the risk you run as an individual is that the store goes out of business, the restaurant closes down, uh, and if it's not there then you or it goes bankrupt, then you certainly can't get the value out of it, and that's lost. So it's a good, it's a good reason to go and get those gift cards spent up as quickly as you can. And if nothing else, inflation is eating away at it. I mean, the stores, they took in 100 bucks from you. Let's see. They then return $100 worth of merchandise or food, but the f I'm wondering who comes out ahead now on that equation. Um, I think the store... I'm getting it, less food for my $100 now because uh, of inflation, right? That's right. I, I think the store comes out a little bit ahead, but really it's a no-win situation, right? The store wants you to use up that gift card because it clears out their books for accounting purposes, um, and then they get you as a hopefully happy return customer. Well, plus, say it's a $50 gift card and you spend $57, right? Yep. I mean, how many of us narrow it down to the penny? Brenda and I used a gift card for a restaurant over the weekend and they don't allow the tip to be on the card. 
which I'm not exactly sure why they do that, but um, it's, that's okay. Uh, so then we tipped with cash. Let's right. uh, talk about the 2024 tax filing season, which what starts today. Is it today? It is today. It officially opens up for business today for the 2024 tax filing season. You're going to be filing your 2023 taxes. And there's been some improvements, probably not nearly enough, but the IRS is expecting 146 million individual returns to be filed this year. The deadline, of course, is April 15th. Um, But they've extended the service. Uh, So there's a taxpayer assistance center, 250 of those across the country. They provide help for people. You can contact your local office or go online. It'll tell you where to call. Uh, There's a phone number you can call as well. There's going to be Saturday hours this year again, which is nice. There's improvements to the Where's My Refund tool. So everybody who's getting a refund always wants to know where it is. Um, And of course, if you put in your bank account number into the IRS uh, filing, you'll get that deposited directly within, should be 10 days, um, once your your IRS return is processed. So that's a good thing. Wait, stop right there. If I file electronically and I have a return coming within 10 days of me hitting send, the money should populate into my account? As long as you have a direct deposit, yes, it should be about 10 days. All right, I'm going to hold you to that. Okay, well, maybe I won't get a return this year, but it doesn't seem to It seems to me like they, when you, in the olden days, if you put a check in the mail because you owe the IRS money, when you close the lid on your mailbox, that check was cashed. You've never seen money cashed faster than the IRS. The return, not so much. Yeah, the refund checks um, to do take a little bit longer. But the nice thing about this Where's My Refund tool is that it can track your actual refund. And there's been some really nice uh, updates to that uh, tool. When it started, it was kind of bulky, didn't really work so well. Works pretty well now. I'll so, yeah, once you get your tax uh, filed. And the nice thing about the IRS website, by the way, John, is they've also recognized it's really hard to find stuff at irs.gov. So when you go there now, you'll see right at the very top, um, how can we help you get your refund status? That takes you to that new um, tool or the upgraded tool. You can get some answers to some common questions, and there's a lot of questions there. You can file your taxes for free. Most people qualify because um, the limit now this year is $79,000 or less. That's most taxpayers. They've got the IRS free file guided tax software Hmm. available on the website through October 15th. And it's... um, the forms uh, help you fill it out. It's it's really nicely done. The IRS is actually testing another free file. I don't believe Illinois is one of the states that you can use it in this year, but I think there's a handful of states. It's supposed to be the next generation of free file software. Well, wait. And I expect we'll see it next year. Elise, how does, you said if you make $79,000 or less, if that's your taxable income for the year, then in Illinois you get a free software uh, the likes of which I guess you would pay for from other companies to help file, figure and file your taxes, right? You go to irs.gov and there are two options. There's an option for adjusted gross income of $79,000 or less. And this is option one. It's guided tax software. So the software um, asks you some simple questions. You choose between the IRS partners you qualify for. Um, that would be, you know, like TurboTax, I think is one of them. Then they do the math for you. Uh, you get free state tax preparation 
uh, again, filing with these trusted partners, it's all free. And you can go to the irs.gov website and click on file for free and it'll take you there. Now, the second option are forms that you can fill out online. It's available for any income level. They don't give you the guidance and the Calcul- you know, limited calculations are provided, no state tax pre- preparation or filing. But if you want to, instead of doing it by hand um, with a pencil and your income is higher than 79000 for adjusted gross income, then that's what you would use. Um, and otherwise, you can pay for, um, you know, somebody to help you do it as well. Now, for people who, and by the way, that comes in Spanish, the guided tax software, uh, for the 79000 or less, you could do it in Spanish as well. Those are the two languages, Spanish or English. Now, there are other free options for, for example, older people, seniors. There's the Volunteer Income uh, Tax Assistance and Tax Counseling Program for the Elderly. You can also get information there. They will help people who generally make $64,000 or less people with disabilities, and taxpayers whose preferred language is not English. And these are IRS-certified volunteers. They provide free basic income tax return preparation in person. So it's a little different from what's online. Uh, They'd still do it electronically, but they do it sitting with you face-to-face, and you can set up appointments Mm. and go in um, and do that. And then finally, uh, the Department of Defense has a program called MILTAX, for members who are in the military, generally it's free tax preparation, electronic filing software, up to three state income tax returns for all military members, some veterans, no income limit. And that's really helpful because oftentimes if you're a member of the military, you're moving around from base to base oh. um, around the world sometimes. And so you need that extra flexibility. And so the Depa- Department of Defense does provide that. Speaking of all this calculating, the yes. amount of money that homeowners are now, or buyers, potential buyers, uh, are able to save, or the additional house they're able to buy because of the lower interest rates is in the news. What's the calculation on this? Right. So Redfin had a new report out today talking about how home buyers can afford a more expensive house now that mortgage rates have dropped. So it was nearly 8% in October. It was like 78 or 7.9%. And now we're looking at mortgage rates around 67 6.8%. I know uh, we said in the news it was 6.88%, but that fluctuates a little bit. And of course, that's for people who have um, the best credit score of people who are a little bit lower would be a little higher. But the point is that if you've got a $3,000 monthly budget, you've gained $40,000 in purchasing power since interest rates peaked. And that's really important because you might be able to afford a home that's $453,000 versus just over 416000 last year. And that's really what the lowering of the interest rates does for people. Now, if we can get them to drop into the 5% range, woo, we're going to be on a roll. So you can buy a more expensive home, or uh, you could buy the less expensive home, but have a substantially lower mortgage payment, I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. It works both ways. And the nice thing about Chicago is that our median home price is below the national average. We're still in the 300000 range. And you can still buy a nice house in Chicago land, Chicago land, the larger, uh, probably not in the Gold Coast, but elsewhere, um, for $350,000. And that's a very, very nice thing to be able to do. Okay, this is from Redfin. To look at affordability from another perspective, the monthly mortgage payment, the monthly mortgage payment on the typical U.S. home, which costs roughly $363,000, is two thousand five hundred forty-five bucks with the six point seven rate. Six point seven. Who's getting six point seven? Is that what? Yeah. Well, that's about where we. I guess that's some folks might be. That's about where it is today. Yeah, yeah. And the monthly payment was twenty-seven hundred when rates were just a little bit higher at seven eight, maybe a lot higher, but twenty-seven hundred to twenty-five hundred. So there's your savings. Wow. Right. Twenty-four, um, twenty-five hundred dollars a year just on that. And it's it's a big savings. I'd also just point out quickly, I know we're running out of time, that yeah. when you buy a cheaper house, other things are cheaper too. Cheaper to heat it, cheaper to maintain it, and less expensive in taxes. Actually, I have almost uh, two minutes left. Talk to me about what uh, Maria Pappas said about our uh, property taxes. Right. So speaking of property taxes, today is also the day that Maria Pappas has mailed $1.8 million uh, $1.8 million. $1.8 million tax year 2023 first installment property tax bills, which is a total mouthful. In other words, the bill is in the mail. Um, just so everybody knows, the bills are due March 1st. This is the first half, which is actually a little bit more than a half. It's 55% of last year's total. You're in the period now where you can contest this. So if you want to do it, you've got, I think, 30 days to file. Um, And the exemptions that would reduce it, like your homeowner's exemption or your senior exemption, those are typically applied to the second installment bill. So you're not going to see those on the first installment. This is the larger total, uh, the larger part of it. Uh, You're going to get that now. Um, You can go to cookcountytreasurer.com. Uh, and you can uh, visit that website. You can pay your taxes. You can get more information about the appeal process. Uh, people are doing that now. You should do it as well. Does this ever happen? Because the rate is the rate. You're not going to negotiate that down, but it's the value of the property, right? And I, I wonder if some people go, hey, at my house, I can't get that much. So this number's too high. The comps in my neighborhood are not as high. So you need to reduce the value of my property, and therefore my bill goes down. But does it ever happen where they look at it and go, actually, your property is worth even more, and now you have to pay more? Or do they promise that they won't charge you more? I, I have never heard of anybody getting charged more. Maybe there is somebody out there. Uh, but you do, uh, a number of, lots of people do get a reduction on their taxes. So if you feel you've been charged incorrectly, um, this is the time to go and file that appeal. And I encourage you to do it. Just make sure you have all of the different pieces that you need, the mm. images, the information about the property. You can get all of that at cookcountytreasurer.com. That's Elise Glink from Think Glink Media and Best Money Moves. Click on thinkglink.com. She'll help you even more. Thanks, Elise. You bet, John. Monday guest Jim Dalkey joins us again today, the national editor at, uh, editor at American Inno. Hi, Jim. Welcome back to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, talk uh, uh, just big picture at first about funding for some of the companies that you cover. What's the trend been and how are we doing in Chicago? Yeah, so, you know, last year across the country, uh, startups raised 
about $170 billion in uh, startup capital through venture capitalists and other investment avenues. $170 billion might sound like a lot. That was actually less than half of what startups across the country raised just two years ago during the peak in 2021, when it was over $340 billion. And so, um, you know, in Chicago, the story a little bit similar. Last year, companies raised about uh, $2.4 billion. That was down from $10 billion in 2022. Now, that number is a little bit inflated from a couple of major deals, which can kind of skew the numbers a little bit one way or the other when one or two companies raises big, big rounds. But, um, you know, generally what we're, we're talking about here is, you know, as venture capital kind of resuming the levels of pre-pandemic. So looking back into 2019, this is kind of stabilizing a bit, sort of taking out the boom years of the pandemic. And one thing that we're taking a look at is how artificial intelligence has played a role investing both nationally and here locally in Chicago. Nationally, about one of every three dollars invested last year went to AI companies, which is really staggering. Uh, in total of number of deals, about 20 percent of all deals were AI companies, which is really significant. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you know, one or two companies can can throw the venture data off locally. That's also true nationally. Uh, about 17 billion dollars, or 10 percent of all of the money that was invested last year, went to just two AI companies, OpenAI and Anthropic. So just you know, two AI companies getting 17 billion, 10 percent of the overall deal value. So uh, you know, what we're showing here is that you know AI businesses are capable of raising significant amounts of capital, and investors are really interested in that. We spoke to some investors here in Chicago. My colleague Alex Zorn was interviewing local investors at Hyde Park Angels and Drive Capital to get a sense of what they're looking for. And they're certainly optimistic about AI, but they have a bit of a cautious approach as well. Uh, we're seeing a lot of companies today sort of just throw AI in their name, even though they're not exactly doing, you know, the real artificial intelligence that some of these real deal AI companies are all about. Um, and, the, and another thing to look at, too, is what, you know, these investors want to see is, um, hey, what is, what is the AI doing that's making this business run better? Is it making you make, helping you make better decisions? Is it helping you save money? Um, so not just AI for AI's sake, for example. I wonder if the money that's going to AI would be going somewhere else. You know, is it um, that less money is being spent, period, or is it the money's just being targeted to this one area now? And then I suppose there's all sorts of other startups or ideas that aren't getting funded because we've got this shiny new object over here. It's a great question, and we are definitely seeing venture capitalists dedicate, you know, entire funds specifically to AI. So I do think that it's true that investors are carving out um, you know, AI as a big piece of their portfolio and, you know, overlooking potentially some other areas. One thing that we've seen really over the last couple of years is, um, you know, consumer startups have taken a hit. So startups that are, you know, building products for, for you and for me, not just for businesses, right? Um, you know, I think they, those, these kinds of businesses have seen less funding in recent years while, um, you know, the sort of B2B AI startups are really taking off. And so, um, you know, look, the funding landscape has changed a ton um, since the pandemic started. One thing that's certainly true is that you know, there's a lot, a lot of promise, at least in the eyes of venture capitalists, in artificial intelligence. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about that. Talk to me about the University of Chicago's Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship. Why did you all write about this? Yeah, they have got a new fund that they've launched uh, to bring, you know, technologies and researches, research projects that are being developed at the University of Chicago to market. And so this new fund uh, is going to give some really early stage capital, um, about $25,000 for prototype development. This is part of their 
proof of concept fund, which is really designed to take this early stage research project and really give them some non-dilutive funding to help advance their projects commercially. So this could be, you know, using um, an opportunity to create a startup, so spin out a startup, but also to license their products and sell that technology to uh, a larger business as well. And so, you know, one thing that's difficult for a lot of researchers and scientists at these universities is is getting access to that capital and, you know, not necessarily turning to venture capitalists, but being able to have some funding that's non-dilutive, that's not going to take equity ownership, get some early capital in to help kind of spin up these projects that are being developed in the university and make them commercially viable. So um, great news for the researchers at this University of Chicago and $25,000 is certainly going to help kind of bring these products to life. What's Fast Break AI? Yeah, really interesting startup. Speaking of AI, Fast Break AI, it's a sports scheduling platform. Uh, And so they just landed in the news recently. We covered them because they landed an investment from the NBA's uh, venture capital arm to help the NBA set its schedule. Uh, there are a lot of factors when a sports league is setting up a schedule. It's not just uh, the competitiveness of the schedule, the fairness of it across the board, but you also have to factor in travel uh, when multiple venues are being used by multiple parties. Um, there's a ton of factors that go into creating a schedule. And uh, Fast Break AI, just a couple-year-old startup, is now a customer, uh, the NBA is a customer of this group, and they're going to be able to use this AI scheduling software to help set their schedule. Um, you know, there's other things to factor in, including TV viewership, right? So the NBA you know, wants to make sure that they've got their, their Christmas Day games are, are widely viewed, right? So that there's, there's a whole bunch of factors that come into setting up a league schedule, and Fast Break AI is going to be used by the NBA, the WNBA, and a bunch of di- different leagues to create kind of optimal schedules. So really interesting AI technology from Fast Break AI. I wonder if that's an AI. Maybe I guess that's AI if it's AI. It seems to me like you could have created a computer algorithm to figure this out earlier, but it is pretty complicated, like maximize TV ratings, maximize revenue, minimize travel, you know, maximize uh, flexibility with some marquee teams or players. And and how how do you do that? Because the schedule's got to be set pretty much before the season starts. So it it does. That's exactly Go ahead. That's exactly right. And it, and it allows the flexibility of the league to change whatever those variables are. So it gives them kind of the opportunity to kind of determine what those constraints are and what the variables are. So, right, if the, if the league wants to say, hey, we need to make sure that we maximize TV viewership over the holidays, it's going to do that. If we want to, you know, cut down on travel for this team because they were the most traveled team in the last two seasons, they're able to control for that variable as well. So there's a lot that goes into it. And, yeah, certainly a couple of guys in a room could have, uh, hammer this out over a few weeks, right? But the AI is able to do this a lot quicker and give uh, the NBA and other leagues a chance to put their optimal schedules together in a much more efficient way. Well, the league that needs this the most is Major League Baseball because it seems like the Cubs and Cardinals will sometimes, or the White Sox, they'll open up at home or they'll have a homestand for a week in April. I'm like, we should not be playing outdoors north of St. Louis for the first month. It should be either indoors or or in a, we should be playing teams in Florida and Texas and California. We should not be playing at home. But, you know, there we all are sitting there shivering our butts off watching the Pirates play in April. And you think, who's doing this? This is stupid. It, I, I know that once upon a time, and it wasn't that long ago, the Major League Baseball schedule was done on paper and note cards by a husband and wife team. Like, very analog. It was just a couple of folks, and they said, here you go. I'm sure they're not doing that now, but... I guess this is a lot of words from me, Jim, to say this technology is needed. 
For sure. And I think at the end of the day, too, it's a reminder that, you know, it's not like giving over the human's powers to the machines, right? If you still want to have, you know, a a home day game in Wrigley in May, uh, you know, over Memorial Day, uh, you know, you can still do that, right? You can plug that in there and make sure that the the computer is getting you what you're looking for. So you're not handing it over completely. But really what this is able to do is to create, um, you know, the math problem for you much more efficiently. I'll bet the Cubs would rather open up most of their games on the road. And that's tough. Uh, Maybe not. But I mean, from a revenue standpoint, that's another metric, right? Are you calculating for wins or for money? Because maybe you don't want to open up on the road a lot, even though the weather will be better. But then, you know, you're going to make a lot more money maybe later in the season when you have all of those home games and the weather is nice. A lot of tickets don't go sold on the south side or north side in the beginning of the season because the weather's crappy. Or you have to charge a a discount because the weather's crappy. Um, So I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by this company called Fast Break AI. Is that the name of the firm? Yep, Fast Break AI just got a $5.2 million funding round led by the NBA's venture capital arm. Mm, Okay, that's the NBA. Uh, Nice to talk to you, Jim. Thanks for your heads up on all of this. Thanks, John. Jim Dahlke, National Editor, American Inno. Time for more business news with Ryan Burrow. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute. Both United Airlines and Alaskan Airlines have resumed use of Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes after grounding the fleet for inspection. Alaska Airlines expects all of its planes to be inspected and back into the air by the end of the month after a plug blew out of an emergency door mid-flight earlier this month. Pickleheads, a leading publication on pickleball, forecasts Illinois will need to build nearly 1,000 pickleball courts at a cost of $31 million over the next five to seven years to keep up with demand of the growing sport. Currently, Illinois ranks 38th in the country with dedicated pickleball court coverage per 10,000 people. A couple chain restaurants are moving into Deer Park Town Center soon. Clean Juice is putting its third juice and sandwich franchise into the Chicago area this spring. There are currently stores in Park Ridge and Naperville. Mexican restaurant Ancho and Agave will open this fall. There are similar restaurants in downstate Bloomington, Wisconsin, and Nebraska. That's your Wintrust Business Minute. I'm Ryan Burrow. We've got the business of food. Here's Steve Alexander. Thank you. Let's begin at the Louvre in Paris, where protesters threw soup at the Mona Lisa, as John mentioned earlier today. They said they were doing so to raise awareness of food insecurity and the struggles of French farmers. The farmers have been doing protesting of their own, with tractor blockades on major highways and the dumping of produce and manure in front of government buildings. Grievances range from too many regulations and rising fuel costs to shrinking subsidies and not enough of the food dollar going to farmers. U.S. farmers may have similar gripes. Take a guess at how much of each dollar you spend on food goes to the U.S. farmer. Think about that while I tell you we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, you're holding a dollar bill. It represents a dollar spent on food. And you're going to take a pair of scissors and cut off the portion that farmers get for producing the food. How much? There are two answers, and here to give them is... My name is Chandler Zachary, and I'm an agricultural economist. Chandler works for an agency within the USDA, and the amount of the food dollar that goes to farmers? Well, here are those two answers. One is the farm share, but the farm share also covers costs to farmers of production. 
2022, it's 14.9 cents. But if you pull out those production costs, the farmer's share accounts for 7.9 cents per dollar of food spending. He says packaging accounts for 2.7 cents of the dollar, transportation, 3.5 cents, advertising, 3.4 cents per food dollar, finance and insurance pick up 3.2 cents, energy, 3.8 cents of the food dollar, other, which includes seed, fertilizer, and equipment companies, get 3.9 cents. Food wholesalers get 10.7 cents. Food retailers, not including restaurants, get 12.4 cents of the dollar. And finally, the biggest chunk of your food dollar by far. Food services cost 34.1 cents per dollar spent on food in 2022. Anytime food is prepared for you, you can think of that as food services. Yeah, I think I just violated the radio professional's rule about using too many numbers and percentages, but there it is. 7.9 cents of each food dollar goes to farmers. From the farm to your belly, it's National Corn Chip Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Hugh Odom is a cellular industry veteran, a telecom expert, founder and president of Vertical Consultants. Hugh, you're on WGN. How are you today? I am well. Thank you for asking. Talk to me about what's happening with Samsung and their phones. What's happening with cell phone service in general relative to AI? Well, there's been a big breakthrough here that Samsung has has launched in the last few days. Um, Samsung has been the leader in cell phone uh, distribution and sales for 12 or 12 years until last year. And Apple took that, that reign over. And what Samsung is doing here uh, is integrating AI into the actual phone. And people can say, well, I have AI available on my phone. Uh, But what the difference is, what Samsung is doing and what Apple has to do in the near term to catch up, is the actual AI is in the hardware and the software in the phone. You're not going off a cloud base, so you're not having to go outside the phone to actually have AI components to your phone. This really transcends what's out there right now Uh in the way of the actual phone. And that just allows you so much more than what you have right now, where we've had this incremental changes in phone, phones where you get a better camera and you get a better screen. AI is going to change the nature of how you can use your actual phone uh, to search search and and do many things that you can't do right now. Uh, With the Samsung phones, is that an app then on the phone, or is it just built right into the operating system of the phone? It it is AI. Mm -hmm. It is AI. It is built right into the phone. Qualcomm it makes a chip, which is really interesting. It's called Snapdragon, and Snapdragon is the actual chip and the hardware, and the software is also integrated, so the AI is in your phone. You do not have to go off your phone to go, in, uh, go into a cloud-based service like ChatGTP or so, uh, something like it to use AI. It is there on your phone. Hmm. Um, so Apple does not have that in their phones? They do not. They do not have it. They, they are still going off the phone cloud-based services, and this is where they're, again, dragging behind. There is, there is a forecast for Apple to get this out sometime later this year, next year. And Apple's philosophy usually is that they let somebody else mm-hmm. be the first through the gate, and they follow up and they say, we do it better. We're not maybe the first, but we do it better. So that's what everybody's expecting on, on the street, that they will have this uh, available, that being Apple hopefully sometime later this year. How would that change my phone experience then, my data experience with the Samsung? What would I do or how much better would I do it with this new phone? Well, as, you, as, as it grows with regards to AI right now, what you're looking at from the, the, the interesting things 
are with regards to search elements of how you can search, how this phone can learn, but also with one of the big things there is basically it's almost like right now one of the big things that you use for is note-taking, things like that. What it means is it can process uh, conversations, information, and give you back basically summaries. It can do things. It's a thinking phone versus having a phone that just you have to input data into. It provides you that kind of uh, elevated processing in the phone. So it really is, again, very early, but it's the first step in many steps to make your phone, again, totally different from what you're using right now. And as AI grows, it will grow as well. Is this a possible application of that then? So I just turn on the microphone or whatever on my phone, set it on my desk there, and as the teacher's lecturing or as the Zoom meeting is going on, afterwards I just say, give me a summary, and boom, there's a summary of what it heard. It's a summary of what's heard, but also it can take in, if, if, I, if we're having this conversation right now and I reference something, it can take that and and search that out as well to give you even more information based upon the references yeah, being right, made. Right. So, so it just, it, so it, it just connects dots that right now you don't have the ability to connect. You can, you can take a conversation and you can go back and summarize it, but it, this goes to the next level. Is this available on a phone right now? Can I go out and buy this a Samsung phone now? I think you can pre-order it now. I think it's going to be out in the, in the next several weeks, but I think it's pre-ordered now. I'm sure there's some out there, but the mass distribution is coming up uh, later this quarter, I believe. Uh, Qualcomm makes the uh, chip you said. Is that made in the United States? Do you know? I do not believe so. I believe it's made, I believe it's made overseas. Probably in Taiwan, then. That's the Taiwan, thing. That's, yeah. that's just kind of terrifying how chip-dependent the planet is on Taiwan, isn't it? It is, and, and that's one of the things that you're getting into with regards to all the manufacturers. Now, Apple is co- trying to bring a lot of that back into, uh, you know, they control the manufacturing, but you're 100% correct. You're so dependent on this chip manufacturing overseas, mostly Taiwan, that people don't realize that. And, and it's it, it also becomes a security issue with regards to the, being outsourced outside the outside the control of the companies and outside the control of U.S. US standards as well. I've been reading a little bit about that lately. And if you say, ah, Taiwan, that's another part of the world. I don't need to worry about it. China and Taiwan will figure it out. But if China owns Taiwan or controls Taiwan, they can control chip manufacturing, or at least they can sabotage chip manufacturing. And then there goes your phone, there goes your military drones, there goes your cancer-fighting machines, there goes your car. The amount of chips that the world is dependent on via Taiwan will surprise most people. So Taiwan is all of a sudden more important than we ever imagined, isn't it? It is. And one other thing to add on to that, which is a great point, is that under Article Seven in in China, that they, if you're a Chinese company, you are you are you have a duty to release information to the Chinese government if you're a private company. So it's not only controlling what gets out there; it's also taking that ability to basically infiltrate devices, et cetera, to pull information. Yeah. This is something that people don't understand. Well, I mean, we we work in the cell tower industry, part of our main focus, and there's there are. Uh, so much, uh, so much out there in the way of cell tower equipment that is Chinese-based Huawei equipment that c- has the capability of collecting data from people using their phone that's hitting, hitting off those, those cell towers. Yeah, we got to uh, pay attention to that. Hugh Odom is cellular industry veteran. Nice to talk to you today, Hugh. Let's stay in touch and have more conversations like this. Sounds great. Have a great rest of your day.